Welcome to the Biology of Trauma podcast, the show that provides professionals with the knowledge and tools for effective science-based solutions for the trauma healing journey. I am your host, Dr. Amy, and I've done the hard work so you can stop your endless searching, have a roadmap for your own work, and be able to help others more powerfully. Welcome to this episode of the Biology of Trauma podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Amy, and this is part two, our second episode with Dr. Ariel Schwartz. The last episode, we focused on self-sabotage. This time, we will be discussing there are three things that the freeze response needs to heal, and today we're talking about one of those three things. Now, this one in particular was a big learning lesson for me on my journey, and so I felt that I needed to share this one specifically with you. This podcast has two main sections. First, Dr. Ariel and I will be sharing on four main topics leading to that one thing that we're discussing today with the freeze response, and we will be covering polyvagal theory. We will be discussing a performance relationship with our body and a listening relationship with our body, along with the wisdom that our body has to offer us in that listening relationship, and then practical tips on how to stop that performance relationship. Then in section two, you're in for a real treat. I will be sharing the story of Dursaline and lessons learned from her breast cancer experience and how this relates to the freeze response and everything that we're talking about today. Let's jump in and let's get started with the polyvagal theory and how our survival system shuts us down when it doesn't feel safe. And we can also work with our nervous system so that we can actually turn toward signals or cues that help us to feel safe and connected. When we look at the polyvagal system, we see that the most evolved or most, most recently evolved part of the vagus nerve and part of the nervous system is that which has basically built in our social connectedness our capacity to love and be loved, our capacity to feel safe and to rest into the intimacy and closeness with another person. That is where we're biologically wired and have evolved into that direction. However, when we feel abandoned or threatened in any way, that system starts to shut down and we go into an evolutionarily older response, which is you know, basically a fight flight response, right? Like we go into the, oh no, no, you're not safe. I have to defend myself. Um, and then the more that one person is defending themselves, the other person starts to defend themselves and it, it rolls over. Or you know, we start to shut down, we retreat, we retreat from connection. So, that, so we're either you know, in some way asserting our power over or we're running away from from connection. You know, in an ideal world, when we can catch those responses, they can be used in service of reconnecting. For example, if you think about a young child who's being dropped off at daycare, just a, a simple basic life example, and you know, what the first thing that they're going to do is they're going to grab, you know, the parent's hand and say, "Let me show you my art on the wall and let me show you the thing I can build with the blocks," right? Social connection for the sake of I don't want to lose you, mommy. I don't want you to go to work. But then if mom then says or dad says, "Hey, I really got to go." What happens next? I'm going to you know, fight you. I'm going to cling onto your skirt. I'm not going to let you go. Or they run away. And so we see how the child goes into fight flight. But the purpose is to get your attention in hopes that you won't go. Now, this is not a trauma story. And of course, sometimes parents have to go to work. That's real life. And, and you know, children can cope with those kinds of normal life stressors. 
But in a state of child, childhood trauma, right, when a child is being, you know, severely neglected or abused, a third layer of defense structure kicks in through the vagus nerve. And I just want to name it here because even though we might be speaking to people who uh, don't identify, you, you, you as a listener, you might not identify yourself as having childhood trauma, but I think that in, in certain ways, we all can relate to the response where we feel powerless, we feel helpless, like nothing we do is going to make a difference. I've tried everything, nothing works. Mm-hmm. Yes. And at that point, the vagus nerve kicks in a protective mechanism that basically says, I don't need you <laughs> if we want to give words to it, although it's, it's way below the level of words. I'm either just going to, you know, kind of lick my wounds and be self-reliant and just take care of me, or on the other hand, I'm going to collapse and feel like, what's the point? It's all futile. And trust me, every single person that I've talked to has touched that place at some point in our lives. Mm-hmm. It's just universal. It's, it's built into our biology. And when we have had experiences of either being stuck in fight flight or stuck in high, high arousal and feeling anxious and not able to sleep, our mobilization system, the, the part of us that moves us through the world is actually being inhibited by that energy that hasn't found its way back to play into the ability to feel safe and mobilize, right? So anxiety is a sign that we actually need to to understand, if we go back to parts, the part of us that learned to move ourselves through the world is somehow associated with an experience of threat. And that if, on the other hand, we feel like, we can't get out of bed. You know, we can't really be nourished and, you know, rest and digest that health of the this parasympathetic nervous system. At some point or another, we learned that that feeling of collapse um, and powerlessness, that there's nothing that we can do about it and that that has been hooked into an experience of threat. So in yoga, we learn to move the body and we learn to rest in both healthy ways. Mm-hmm. And when we move the body in this way, that's one way in which we can work directly with the nervous system because it's the nerves that innervate the muscles. We can't move our muscles without (laughs) activating our nervous system. And so when there has been a nervous system that's been stuck in imbalance in one of the survival states, general and basic movement, especially with yoga, can be so helpful just to start to loosen up and bring some flexibility, bring some life into a nervous system that's been stuck. Yes. You know, what I think that can be so misunderstood about yoga in our Western culture, if I want to put it that way, is that we think of yoga as these external shapes that we take. And unfortunately, if you're a driven person and if you're performance-based, that same mindset can come right onto the yoga mat. And so when we're coming at this as a healing practice, we want to undo those kinds of expectations because what we're, what we're aiming to do is actually reclaim a listening relationship to the body rather than a performance relationship with the body. So that we're allowing sensation to guide movement and we're really tending that if we're pushing yourself into a pose and your body is like, oh, that's the last thing I want to do right now, aren't we recapitulating the same parts that can backfire out in our lives? 
And one of the things that I notice among professionals, uh, those focused on performance, is that they have that part of themselves that is compensating for not wanting to feel the more young and sensitive parts that if they feel that they were to open up that box, it would be like opening up something that they could not contain. And mm -hmm. so it's, it's best just to, again, lock it up, shut it away, not even open that box, not pay attention to that. And that then even comes into their ability to relax because they feel like they need to be a little in the sympathetic state, a little on the adrenaline in order to, to not relax because when they relax, that stuff that they're trying to not feel seems to surface and it's so mm -hmm. uncomfortable for them. Yes. In somatic psychology and in general in trauma treatment, what we speak about is that we're building tolerance for our emotions and for our sensations. And what that means is that we're basically allowing ourselves to turn toward more of our feeling body and feeling less threatened by it at the same time. So that rather than labeling, as you said earlier, labeling a part of ourselves or a sensation as bad, we bring in instead mindful curiosity so that we can go toward a sensation and say, ah, I don't like it when this part of myself gets tight or is, is cramping or here I am trying to run a marathon and I feel like there's this chronic lower back pain that's always holding me back, right? So we can even work with areas in the body that are holding. Um, but when we can come with that with curiosity, we can hear well, you know, maybe this is the part that didn't want to run the marathon. Now, having worked with elite athletes, the outcome isn't, you know, I think the fear is sometimes all of a sudden I won't be able to do my sport anymore because that other part's going to take over. But in actuality, that's not the goal either. It's not that the part that feels uh, sabot you know, that sabotaging needs to shut down the whole system. In fact, one woman that I had worked with who uh, was an elite athlete realized that she had just been over containing those younger parts of herself and her vulnerable emotions. But once she was able to, to understand herself better in her own depth and her own history, she could have a conscious agreement because she would really like there was part of her that loved to do these uh, ultra marathons, right? Like that was her thing. And those are really hard we're talking 100 miles and uh but she but part of her loved it and part of her didn't but she could actually make agreements with those parts to a place where she felt at peace and she was no longer fighting against herself which frees up energy for her running <laughs> exactly mm -hmm. exactly so she actually found that it amplified her performance in the end to do that deeper work and i can very much relate to that because there have been many many times where different physical conditions, symptoms will happen, and it will be very much related to a part of me that got triggered or, you know, a part that is struggling and I'm not at peace with that part. And that's how it shows up. I remember specifically, <laughs> I'm, I like to bike and I started having this pain only in my right knee when I would bike a certain distance and it was never consistent. And so that's why I thought, you know, I'm not sure that this is actually a physical injury. Okay. I'm wondering <laughs> if this is, if this has some other message for me. And at that point I had started my work with somatic experiencing and the parts work. 
And so I started exploring that on my own. And what I realized was, yes, like that is the part of me that feels insecure, that feels like it doesn't have enough to meet the situation. And I found that once I felt that pain now when I was on my bike and all I needed to do was acknowledge it was I got your message. I get that you are feeling under-resourced, that you're feeling like you don't have enough. I got it and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find a way to support you and bring in more resources. That's all it needed to hear and it would go away immediately. That's how amazing our bodies are and this relationship that we can start to develop with our bodies. And you just named something. It's such a simple tool, but most of us don't realize that we can talk to our bodies and our bodies respond. And it's so beautiful. It might respond by an image. It might respond through a sensation. It might respond through a dream that we have or just a memory that we have, a clarity about what what a part is holding. And there is so much wisdom and intelligence in our body. When we look at the science, if we just go back there, the science shows us that there are as many neurotransmitters that we, you know, we think of our neurotransmitters and the intelligence neurons, the cells that communicate information is just existing in our brain, but they, those exist in our bellies, in our gut, in our intestines. They, they exist up and down our spine. They exist in our hearts, right? So there is wisdom and intelligence all throughout the body. And I spent most of my life, especially having been trained in conventional medicine, to not at all be paying attention to that, but more be paying attention just to the neurochemistry, the actual, you know, neurotransmitters and their receptors and how do we need to change those and what is the physical cause of these types of symptoms. And so it was such a paradigm shift for me to, first of all, have to recognize that, you know what, there's something much bigger here. <laughs> there is, there, there is like this whole nother element and of course, that's a different story for how I got into it. But then once I started paying attention to my body and actually seeing how much more efficient I could get at making decisions, at knowing what to do when I paid attention to how my body was reacting to the situation or to the different options that were before me, it has really helped be a guide for me rather than being the hindrance that I thought it would be. Yes. Yes. You're reminding me of something that I learned when I was studying somatic psychology, I don't know, 24 years ago or so. And I remember reading that the body loves when we're in sync, right? That experience of feeling our sensations. And one of the ways that the body naturally responds is through our endogenous endorphins, right? Like when we're listening. And, you know, for those of you that are runners or bikers or athletes, we get that we get endorphins when we push ourselves and so forth. But actually we get those same endorphins when we simply are in tune and in sync with our felt experience. And yet that does take time, <laughs> right? Dr. Schwartz, like that was a hard transition for me at first because I didn't want to spend time on just paying attention to my body. I wanted to just go, go, go. And I just needed to figure out how to quiet this body of mine so that I could continue to go. And obviously my work has, has opened up my eyes in terms of no, when I can be in sync with my body, then it allows me to go so much further and so, so much more 
aligned and I'm actually in the present moment as I go there, I'm able to get more done because I'm in sync and not having to use energy to shut it down. But it does, it does take time and practice and effort to take those pauses and see like, what is happening in my body? Like I just felt something and what is that? Uh, taking the time to have that communication, to learn how to even communicate with our body, because for each person, I imagine it's going to be different in terms of, you know, do they tend to have more images that come up or thoughts or sensations, but developing that relationship, just like a person would with any other relationship in their life, that that time and investment in their body and understanding their body and how that communication can go back and forth has been, yeah, huge for shifting so many people. Yes. So often when I um, have conversations with people who are reticent to practice yoga, the very first thing that they say is, oh, I don't want to slow down that much. Like, mm -mm, no, like, I'll get me on the bike, get me on the trail, but mm, no, not that. And I think that the key piece is not just that it takes time, but it requires time. It requires that we slow down. And when we can tolerate the sensations or the emotions that might bubble up, the vulnerability that bubbles up when we slow down, the benefits are outstanding. I um, did my early research on stress and burnout. And I think that burnout is one of the biggest costs of our uh, professional world, that if we stay in go, 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 it's almost the inevitable cliff that we're walking towards because the body naturally needs to reset with that slowing down. So how do you help encourage someone to find those rhythms of their life where they're, they're going at the pace that they can live well and be in alignment with their body? Well, you know, I'm always going to meet, as you said before, it's indiv it's very individual, right? So if I'm working one-on-one -on -one with someone, I'm going to understand th their inner world, right? Like, what is the, the go, go, go about for them? And what happens when they slow down, right? What happens when, when what bubbles up for that person? What's the messages that they got about rest, and if I'm, you know, working more globally, if I had a, a general statement around it, it's to kind of ask yourself what arises, you know, you the listener out there, right? Like ask yourself what arises for you when you simply attend to your breath and, you know, even just a hand over the heart and a hand over the belly, right? In my Zoom screen, we're living in these boxes nowadays. <laughs> but, you know, just, just a little bit of breath right there. And then what do you notice? What do you notice that you're drawn to go toward? And what are the aversions that arise where you say, mm -mm, no, I don't want to go there. Mm -hmm. And then when you meet an aversion, if you can bring curiosity, in, mm -hmm. that's, that's the wisdom. Curiosity rather than judgment, right? Rather than yeah. hating it or disliking it, being able to almost see it as a third person, if that helps, and just be really curious about it. Like, I wonder, I wonder why uh, my body would have that sensation, why there? Why now? Why that intense? And be able to get really curious about it. Yes, yes. And I think as a general statement about our world, we struggle with that kind of curiosity, even in relationship to another person, right? Mm -hmm. It requires that we slow down and listen. What is one of the three things that the freeze response pattern needs in order to change? Time. It needs time. 
We can give it that time by slowing down. What do I mean when I talk about the pattern of the freeze response? It's the pattern in our life when we shut down, when we don't feel safe. We hide ourselves from opening up fully to life, to not want to feel at all, but to brace, to numb, to distract ourselves. Changing this pattern where it does show up in our life is truly the most important work that each of us has to do in our lifetime. Find those areas in which we are not wanting to open up fully to life because of how it would hurt. One thing that is required to change the freeze response is time. Start by building in moments to slow down and get curious about what comes up when you slow down. Get curious about the uncomfortable sensations, perhaps the emotions, perhaps pain, tears, or even anger. This can all show up when we give that time to our body. Now, what does this have to do with cancer? Oh my goodness, everything. I have a very special guest and she is going to share her own personal story and her breast cancer journey. She realized something powerful. She was creating the environment in which this freeze response was the major pattern in her life and contributing to her disease process. I did not know any of this when she joined the 21 day journey and then took it again and then again. And then she joined the intentional community for support afterwards. And now I understand why this was helping her make these changes in her life. It can be hard to do this alone. We weren't meant to do things alone. And she knew that she needed community to help sustain these changes that she was making to come out of a fear-based operating system. She actually has since entered my training program and now mentors others during their 21-day journey. And this is how I have gotten to know more of her story. I want you to meet Dursaline. So here she is. Yeah, my name is Dursi Souza, and I was born in Brazil. So I went to dental school and became a dentist. And after that, through dentistry, I met my husband. We live in Los Gatos, California, and we are raising three young kids. Adam is eight years old, and my twin girls are six. Life was this, kind of the same until I got my breast cancer diagnosis. I went through a very difficult phase when I was still grieving for the passing of my sister and also going through the process of uh, trying to help my, my kids and witnessing what was the start of a long journey, you know, with the uh, therapies for them. So... It kind of now that I know a little bit about trauma, I can see those little elements, you know, pieces happening in for a lengthy period of time, but also I had those other elements that happened suddenly. So it was kind of a combination of too much, too fast, and too little for too long. But I was kind of trying to be brave and hold myself together and go through it and not kind of give up or, and be maybe not good enough for my kids. I, I thought that I would have to go through this process and stay there for their best interest, for their future, for their development. I was diagnosed with breast cancer. So it was right when the pandemic started, kind of, yeah, we were already in lockdown and I just went for a annual screening. So I had to do surgery. It was very traumatic 
for any woman that would be, you know, to to have both breasts removed. So after that surgery, I started chemotherapy. And then after chemotherapy, I had another surgery for the reconstructive part of the breast. So it took about close to one year, the whole process. And uh, that's when I visit my oncologist for follow-ups. And uh, he said, you are doing great. That's it. We are, you are all set. You can go home, go back to your older life. Back to what everything you used to do. You can do everything. You can exercise. You can eat everything you want. And I started asking him, well, everything, but don't I need to make changes like lifestyle? You know? And he said, no, 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 take advantage. Now you are free. Go back and do everything you want. But for me, deep inside, it was not the right thing for me. I knew that the way my life was happening was what put me into cancer. Cancer teaches a lot. I learned from that journey that, well, I needed to look at myself now. So I know that I put my, my two girls at the top priority list for all this time. But this is the result now for them and for myself. I needed to make a change, a shift. That has to start with myself. Before I put myself on hold, 100% dedication for the kids and the family. But now I needed to make a change and bring back myself to the top of the list. And for a cancer patient, we want to know what happened. Why did I get my cancer? My medical tests did not really answer that question. I, I didn't carry the BRCA1, BRCA2 mutation. No. I also checked the other 50 uh, genetic mutations linked to other kinds of cancers, and they all came back negative. I know I have family history of cancer. I really want to blame all my genes, but the tests were coming back all negative. So it was something else happening in my environment, in my life, that were changing the way my genes were expressing. Dursi is going to share next on the fear that she finds in the cancer community, but what she just said was so important, I need to highlight that. However, it may really challenge your beliefs. Do I have your permission to say something that might challenge your beliefs around disease? She said, so it was something else that happened in my environment, in my life, that was changing the way my genes were expressing. This, my friend, is called epigenetics. And our freeze response is the largest driver of our epigenetics or the expression of our genes, which genes get turned off and which ones get turned on, which means that the most important thing you can do to change your physical health, your physical health symptoms and conditions now and in the future is trauma work. Even if you don't think you have trauma, because by trauma work, I really mean changing this freeze response pattern in your life. She knew the pattern of how she was living her life was contributing to her development of cancer. Her pace of life was actually causing the two triggers for the freeze response. Too much too fast and too little for too long. 
too much too fast for the events that are happening in our life. We don't have enough time to actually process things as they are happening. They happen too much too fast. That's one of the triggers for the freeze response and our body literally goes into shutdown mode. It's too much. When we slow down, we can give our body the time, the time that it needs to process things as they are happening so that they're not happening too much too fast. The other patterns of the freeze response that she mentioned are putting others first, not prioritizing herself or even neglecting what she needed to be healthy and her best self. And that led to the other trigger for the freeze response. Too little for too long. Too little of what you need for just way too long. And so that causes our body, our biology, literally to bounce back and forth between the two states of stress and freeze response. Sometimes feeling energized and stressed and doing something about the problems in our life, that's stress. And at other times, going into the energy collapse. And what's the point? I'm in overwhelm. That is the environment our cells are bathed in. Getting information from the nervous system to literally shut themselves down to life, close themselves off to life. Of course, that's going to affect our physical health and our symptoms and conditions. And it's way more than just stress management. This is not stress. This is not just learning to express your emotions or stand up for yourself. It is so much deeper. We are talking about a freeze response that has become the programming in our cells. It is the environment in which our cells are living. Trauma work is environment control, and it allows us to take control over our environment that changes the biology at the cellular level, at the DNA level, at the epigenetic level. This is why this is so exciting and the most important work that each of us can do because our nervous system is the program that runs our life. Some people call it the subconscious mind, which is fine. But what we are really talking about here is the autonomic nervous system. It's not the brain. The brain is the central nervous system. We are talking about the autonomic nervous system. This is where trauma gets stored by causing this freeze response to become the pattern that operates frequently in our lives to that pattern of shutting down to life, down to the level of our cells and DNA. We have been operating from a place of overwhelm, fear, and closing ourselves off to life. And when we create a felt sense of safety, because we know that the freeze response needs safety, but when we create that felt sense of safety, our body, our cells now open up to life again. A diagnosis like it was for Dursi can be just what we apparently need for a wake-up call to live life differently, to create the different environment. Yet let's get back to her story because she is seeing that it is not the wake-up call for many. And there is still a lot of fear in the cancer community. I want you to hear more of what she learned about the role of fear in her life and how she came to learn how to actually feel the fear in her body and decide that's what she needed to change. Though at the time, didn't know what to do and how to change that. Can you relate? I can relate knowing that you need to change that fear response, knowing that you need to change the fear programming, but not really knowing how. All right, let's jump back to Dursi. Talking about the cancer communities, there is fear there, the fear of recurrence. And that's when I notice, I don't want to be in that place. That's not a good place. I could feel it in my body. Until I saw Dr. Amy, 
be interviewed by Beth O'Hare, and uh, she was defining trauma. Until then, I had no idea. Didn't cross my mind. Trauma? Am I traumatized? Am I? Do I have stored trauma in my body? I, for me, it was just life, you know, what I was going through, and I needed to be brave, you know? I was surviving, and I am brave. So I listened to her interview, and I clicked it. I had so many aha moments listening to to her explanations and she's a great teacher right and, and she puts you know simple words into very complicated <laughs> subjects yeah yeah to explain it and put it, make it easy for us to understand so luckily the 21 day journey was about to start maybe the next day or two days after i watched her interview and during the interview, I already clicked in the link and I signed up. I was so curious to learn more and uh, because I, I could tell, wow, a lot of things happened in the past years and it was uh, too much, too fast, you know, the true change began with the 21-day journey one year ago because first I started having awareness of what was going on in my life. And I could experience it in my body, finally. Because before that, I was more in my mind. I was just pushing myself beyond my limits and uh, was all about go, 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 do, do, do. I remember the days where it felt like I didn't have enough hours in the days and I even had thoughts like, why did God make only... 24 hours for each day. I needed more. So that was the feeling inside me. It was never done, you know, never good enough. Never, I could never accomplish a task. Like it, I always felt like everything was still open in the air. With the journey, it helped me noticing the environment. I started orienting myself and slowing down when I was doing the tasks. So that helped me even breathe better. My breathing was super shallow. But I started noticing that I could slow down and take the, that moment, if, it, if it's just one minute, to look around and not only look at my kids, but look around, look at the trees, look at the sky, and uh, uh, look at myself. So I started mirroring at me as well. So how can I help you? So I started seeing myself. And then I started picking some of the things from week two to give me support. I joined another 21-day journey in the new year. Uh, I think it was February or March, like, uh, let's say, two or three months after the first one. And, and uh, I noticed that my capacity had increased from the first journey to the second. Of course, I was reviewing everything all over again, but also I could do more. And I was able to help my body, supporting my body, and bring more of the week two exercises to action. I took all the modules of the biology of trauma that Dr. Amy offered, because then I wanted really to expand and help myself at a deeper level. And uh, I want to learn. I was so curious, and she's a great teacher, so I just kept going. 
And from there, you know, more awareness happened and I, I could do more, you know, little by little, baby steps. But at the end, people started noticing the change, actually. And uh, especially those people that did not meet me for uh, a long time and they saw me again and they were surprised. Wow, you went through cancer treatment just recently, but you, you look great. <laughs> you know, you look like better than before. So, yes, uh, that's because I was really uh, changing the focus towards me and I was being intentional to help me and to learn how to get inside me and, you know, find the cure inside me, that healing power. And I don't want to have fear. I just want to support my body. I would rather be working towards finding a path to feel joy and feel alive, what Dr. Amy calls calm aliveness, than to take a path offered by other communities that comes, you know, brings along the fear and that you have to do this because otherwise you can get a recurrence and then you stay in your mind. We talk a lot about numbers and percentages and life expectancy in, in five years, 10 years, or so things like this. The conversations, the talk in the cancer community is totally different than the talk in the trauma community. That's interesting. You know, the Dr. Amy's community, yes, yeah, she called she calls it, you know, trauma healing. There is the word trauma there that can even push some people away. But actually there is life behind it, right? And you wanna get to live well and fully with the good stuff, with joy, with happiness. That's what she is guiding us towards, to that place. So that's the reason I felt connected to her work and to her proposal. And I could feel it when I took the 21-day journey. And then I can also tell the difference, the way it feels in the body when I take her journey compared to, you know, rather than taking another cancer community support group or journey. You know what I mean? It's it's totally different. I, I want to go on a journey that talks about life and joy rather than going on a journey that talks about, okay, let's make changes in your lifestyle, you know, otherwise the cancer then can, comes the C word again, can come back or, you know, toxic environment. That, so it's just like the vocabulary is heavier you know, and the words have weight and the vocabulary is heavier in the cancer community support groups compared to the weight of the words used in the biology of trauma community. So that's my analysis, I would say, uh, being to both places and, and choosing the one that was make me feel safer and better supported to continue my healing journey. And definitely there is hope. Mm-hmm. And it starts with you. Just you know, work with yourself and find a good guide to show you the way. And Dr. Amy is excellent. A gift for all of us 
she puts <laughs> simple words into complicated life challenges and make it uh, feel like and you know, sound like and look like, oh, you can make it. You know, that is hope. All will be well. You will survive and you will be able to expand your capacity and work with yourself because that's our journey. So we are individuals and each of us is different. So just find your guide and uh, work with yourself. And a little by little, baby steps. In the long run, you will see the big difference in your life. And hopefully you will feel, you know, safe and supported, you know, most part of your days. And the days you don't feel well, at least you know what to do. Because you've been there, you've been through it, you know the way out. So you will be more intentional. Oh, I know there is hope. There is a way out. And I know I can do it because I did it before. If I need more help, I can reach out to the community. The community is here too for everybody. So just join it and try it for yourself. You will be amazed. I think it's amazing. Thank you. Isn't that incredible? People in Dursaline's life said she looked better after her cancer journey. Once she found how to attend to her nervous system, listen to her body, Give it the time, work with her freeze response, and take a healing journey to calm aliveness. I hope listening to this gives you hope. Hope because no matter what life has brought you, whether cancer, loss, grief, stress, overwhelm, it's never too late. It's like gardening. We can always put a struggling plant into a different environment. Working on our freeze response, doing trauma work is exactly that, learning to create different soil, a different environment for ourselves to grow to actually grow into life, into aliveness. Hope, because as Dursaline said, starting a trauma healing journey isn't about the trauma. It's about the life. It's about finding calm aliveness, about reclaiming that listening relationship with our bodies that Dr. Ariel and I discussed. Hope, because you don't have to live in fear. When we understand our biology and the steps that cause overwhelm to build up in our lives, We see the clear path out. We don't have to live in fear. If you are interested in joining my community and taking the 21-day journey challenge, I warmly invite you to join us. Taking the 21-day journey challenge and experiencing the difference for yourself is what literally could help save your life. We all have a unique healing journey, but we don't have to take it alone. And that wraps up today's episode. The one thing the freeze response needs is time. It also needs safety and energy, but the one thing that we discussed today is time. Rearrange our priorities to not just be in a performance relationship with our body and the go, 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 but establish a listening relationship to our body. I hope you join me next week for the third and final episode with Dr. Ariel Schwartz in this series. And See you next time. Thank you for joining me today. If you enjoyed today's show, be sure to subscribe. We definitely will learn, laugh, and sometimes cry together on this healing journey, and you won't want to miss an episode. Give my podcast five stars, share it with a friend or colleague. If you felt an impact as it truly helps get the word out and breaking the paradigm of how we do trauma work. I look forward to seeing you back here next week. Until then, this is your host, Dr. Amy, sending you lots of love.